0: what's happening far far away family how's everyone doing today i hope all is well on your side of the galaxy nothing really new out here on the outer rim other than we just finished up with the kenobi series and i have to say it was good overall as a star wars fan i like the nostalgia that it brought but at the same time as a critic i think that they could have done more they left a lot of plot holes and left us kind of wondering what was going on now i'm just wondering where they will go next because overall disney is not doing a good job on their series right now Well, let me rephrase that a little bit. The Mandalorian so far is a great series, but we'll have to see what happens in season 3. Now, the Book of Boba Fett and the Kenobi series were lacking. They took fan-favorite characters and gave them a mediocre story. It's not that they were completely bad. A lot of Star Wars fandom needed a fix. But that Star Wars fix could have been better. But that's just my opinion. Now, let's move on to an article that I just read. An article that was kind of disturbing to me. Now, I'm going to mess up his name. I always mess up his name. Takey. I can't say his name right, Taika Waititi, however you say it, was joking around about his new movie. He said he was making a Jar Jar Binks movie that fans wanted, which kind of scares me. Yeah, I like a little bit of comedy in my Star Wars movies, but the whole point of a Star Wars movie is to build hope, to show us that hope is important. And for him to joke that he is making a Jar Jar Binks movie, even if it was a joke, that scares me. It just makes me feel like he is not taking this seriously. And I don't know why Star Wars fans would ask for a Jar Jar Binks movie or even that type of movie. We like a little bit of comedy within our Star Wars movies, but we don't want a whole movie based on comedy. I just think there's too many other things that Disney can do to make movies about, and so many different things that they could do to please Star Wars fans. Disney needs to understand that they can't make movies based on what they think we wanna see. They need to make movies and TV series based on what Star Wars fans truly wanna see. Just like the idea of making a Revan movie, which has been talked about for a few years now, and we still don't have a Revan movie. Sometimes it seems like to me that Disney is just trying to ruin Star Wars, or they are trying to run Star Wars the way Marvel is being ran. If you think about it, Marvel has a lot of different characters. There's a lot of different comic books and a lot of different superheroes. Star Wars has a lot of characters too, but they don't have the idea of the plot to cover those different characters and stay within the timeline that George set. So they are just giving us something with characters we know, and not really paying attention to the timeline, like we might not notice. Or they are trying to change Star Wars into a Disney brand completely. Destroying the characters we love and pushing us in the direction of their characters. Either way, Disney has to do more. If they want Star Wars to be a vibrant part of their franchise, they're going to have to push out more type of Star Wars content that appeals to the fans. Now let's get to what we really came together to hear. Star Wars Brotherhood. Because when we left off last week, Mace was giving a talk to the newest Jedi Knights. A group of knights that Anakin was a part of. So let's see what the story has to say now. But first, we gotta drop that intro. A crowd you have.
1: You allowed two men to talk this way, and just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far away. Now let's hear what Darth has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Obi Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan stood side-by-side side with his former Padawan, just as they'd done many times over the past decade, and yet, this was different. This felt different. Together, they watched the hollows of Palpatine and the Clone Commander flicker, alongside intercepted security recordings from Cato Neimoidia that lacked enough clarity to fully define the scope of the devastation. But for several seconds, Obi-Wan ignored galactic catastrophes and instead thought of Anakin, who stood quiet with arms behind his back. His usual commanding stance with intense eyes taking in the unfolding conflict. A powerful Jedi, an intense heart, an uncontrollable impulse, all of these things were central to Anakin's being. And now an equal, his Padawan braid severed. But more than the symbolism of his braid, Anakin's emotional transition to Jedi Knight was proving rougher than Obi-Wan expected. Rather than a simple flick of a mental switch, Anakin seemed to take several steps forward toward confident decision-making before skirting back into deference. Anakin Skywalker seemed unsure of where his place was, which was quite unlike him, Given all of the arguing they'd done for years, all those times Anakin insisted he was right. Perhaps the war muddied those waters. He thought back to his own early days. His ascension into Jedi knighthood counterbalanced by the loss of Qui-Gon Jinn. And while his peers seemed to take their promotions in stride, his own circumstances created so many stumbling blocks. How long did it take for him To feel like he'd earned the title and now that he was given an opportunity to sit on the Jedi Council how could his input possibly carry the same insight and weight as that of more experienced Jedi masters a memory fluttered through Obi Wan's mind an exchange with his former master he hadn't thought of in nearly a decade don't center on your anxieties Obi-Wan exhaled and felt the ground beneath his feet, returning to the here and now. Early estimates put the death toll at 4,000, based on daily traffic of the Katasura district, the clown said. The bridge held important political targets, including the Trade Federation licensing office. But it also housed an arts district with numerous commercial buildings. I'm afraid the civilian casualty toll is high. Palpatine's holographic visage flickered as the Chancellor frowned. Understood. Thank you for the report, Commander. Yoda stepped forward. Neutral. Kato Nemoidia is. No reason for military targeting. Work with all sides. The Trade Federation does. Obi-Wan considered the recent tactical report he'd seen on the Splinter faction led by Newt Gunray. One that Lot Dodd claimed was completely disconnected from the Trade Federation. Has Senator Dodd been informed? Palpatine nodded. He is just outside of communication range. But as I understand it, he is aware of the situation. Yoda stick tapped on the floor. Insight our new Jedi Knights have? Obi Wan caught Anakin's eyes dropping, as well as the short inhale that he quickly swallowed. Could Loyalists from the Republic have guerrilla fighters who went rogue, Kirstenwood said. And though her voice projected confidence, she glanced at her mentor, Madoc Risto, who offered a subtle nod in return. Bounty Hunters, Durbin when heard offered. War always drives their economics. It could be a coordinated effort to create demand for their services. Perhaps, Yoda said. Perhaps a true accident, this is. A separatist trick. Anakin finally interjected, the gravity of seriousness in his voice. A ploy to gain sympathies. The Namoidians are unscrupulous cowards. The judgment in his voice caught Obi-Wan's attention.
0: Though given his long, volatile history with them, it wasn't that surprising. Okay, let's stop right here and take a look at the way it just described the whole situation. I really appreciate the way the author brought context to Obi-Wan and Anakin's relationship and how it differs from Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon's relationship. Jumping into Qui-Gon's words bringing Obi-Wan back into the situation at hand, it shows the progression of where they both stood in the light of the Clone Wars. The way it described Master and Apprentice now becoming equals. No more Padawan brave for Anakin but at the same time pointing out Anakin's unease at his new position and showing Obi-Wan's reluctance to be a part of the Council, feeling that he doesn't have the experience. These are all good points to show us that they both are not ready for their positions but because of the Clone Wars they were forced into these positions, from Knight into Master and from Padawan into Knight, kind of the same way Obi-Wan felt after the death of Qui-Gon. And to tell you the truth. That would scare the heck out of me. If I was Obi-Wan, I would be questioning, is Anakin ready for this position? And I think that that's what this part is telling us, or at least that's how I took this part. Now let's move on into the next segment so we can see what's happening now.
1: That seems counterproductive, even for Newt Gunray. He would not sacrifice a civilian population of his own people. May said, his glare strong enough for Obi-Wan to feel from several meters away. Anakin inhaled to retort, but then caught eyes with Obi-Wan again. And that mere threat of connection seemed to be enough to halt the young Jedi's impulses. Yoda shook his head, his ears trembling with the movement. Mmm! Possibilities war has created, the old Jedi Master said, a rare disgust in his words. Points of view distorted. The scope of the Clone Wars, beyond the peacekeeping tradition of the Jedi. Anakin straightened, turning back to the hologram of Palpatine, who looked off to the side before nodding and continuing. Count Dooku appears to be making a statement right now. And with that... The fallen Jedi appeared alone, his regal maroon cape draped over his shoulders, as he stood in what was apparently a small office in his Serenno home. The feed caught him in mid-sentence, though his tone and words quickly filled in the blanks. Act of Terrorism. As the primary representative of the Confederacy of Independent Systems, I assure the Trade Federation and the citizens of Cato Namordia that we have no involvement in such senseless violence. We condemn such things, and our relationship with the Trade Federation is, as it has always been, merely transactional in nature. However, We make no secret that Viceroy Newt Gunray and his associates are key officials of our movement. Emotion surged from Anakin, a tangible wave at the mention of the Trade Federation Viceroy. Obi-Wan observed his former apprentice from the way his shoulders locked to the tightening of his jaw, a tension that came and went quickly, but not as quick as most Jedi i think the evidence is clear the republic targeted newt gunray who was visiting the katasura district a mere hour before the bombing had the viceroy stopped to enjoy the cuisine of his people or to take in the local museum to amass himself in the culture he dearly misses he would have been killed dooku straightened his unblinking eyes looking straight into the cam, piercing the distance from Sereno to Coruscant. But despite this mountain of evidence against the Republic, I am nothing if not honorable. I invite the Republic to explain this action. I will stay away to avoid any perception of conflict. After all, the Trade Federation is a neutral entity, and should be allowed to pass judgment using their own system of justice. For the Republic to truly be open to discussion of such a catastrophic event, it seems only right that Chancellor Palpatine himself go to Cato Neimoidia. The mere suggestion caused a ripple through the space, from Anakin's suddenly tensed fist to Mesa's furrowed brow. Next to Dooku's hologram, Palpatine's translucent image flickered, though the shock on his face broadcast clearly to all watching. Such an action would be a remarkable gesture. Dooku said with a smile In the name of transparency. Yoda turned as Duku's feed broke apart, the Countess of Sereno's image quickly disappearing. Discuss this further, we will. Facts must be gathered. The Senate, we need. No, Palpatine said, his mouth weary. There is no time for Senate deliberation. I will go. I must leave as soon as possible. Every second counts. Without my presence, Duku may sway the Trade Federation's allegiances to the Separatists. They're far too important a galactic power to let that happen. I'll go with you, Anakin said. A clone battalion, if he goes, May said. The Chancellor needs the highest levels of security. Palpatine, flying off to the scene of a disaster on a neutral world? Not just a neutral world, but the crown jewel of the Trade Federation. The same organization with ties to Newt Gunray? Obi-Wan shook his head, and in a rare moment of letting his impulses break through, he spoke without a fully considered plan. Chancellor, you must not go. It's a trap. Dooku is playing us. All eyes suddenly turned to Obi-Wan, and now he had to coalesce those impulses into clear thoughts with the fate of the galaxy at stake. Doku wants you arriving in a hostile environment, a no-win situation. Think about the optics. This planet is in a state of shock. Its people are mourning. If the Chancellor arrives with troops and Jedi and the fleet, it will, at best, heighten tensions. At worst, it could lead to violence all while leaving him vulnerable to sabotage. Master Kenobi, I understand your concerns, but this is a risk I must take, Palpatine said, a solemn gravel to his voice. I will do anything to put a swift end to this war. Obi-Wan shook his head again. Mind sprinting for a solution that would pull Palpatine back from immediate departure. Alone, Jedi. A single emissary with a small crew of scientists and investigators, representing the good faith of the Republic. As Palpatine's eyebrow arched up, Yoda let out an audible, mm-hmm. It is the best balance of diplomacy, transparency and investigation. A Jedi has the training to uncover the truth, the autonomy to make decisions, the abilities to move quickly, and the authority to represent the Republic." Obi-Wan said the words coming out so rapidly that he needed a large breath. "'We are peacekeepers. Even the Trade Federation knows that. Peacekeepers,' Palpatine said, a slight smile to his lips. I am not entirely convinced this will work. However, the logistics of my sudden departure will, unfortunately, require a day to sort out. Master Kenobi, if you can convince the kato government and the Trade Federation before that, then I will concede to you. One day, Obi-Wan nodded then looked around the courtyard. Palpatine, Yoda, Mace Windu, Anakin. They all watched him. I will come up with a strategy to present within one day. In the meantime, May said, we will discuss potential security measures for the Chancellor with the Senate. We must be prepared for both paths. Palpatine looked off cam again. Then spoke a few inaudible words. I have further issues to attend to. But I look forward to your findings,
0: Master Kenobi. We must move quickly. Okay, so let's stop right here, because there's something I have to get off my chest. The more I hear the elegance of Count Dooku speaking, the more it makes me just like him. And I can see why Sidious picked him to be his apprentice. Not only was he a powerful Jedi, one of Yoda's prized Padawans, he just had a way with words that made you believe what he says. Cause just from his little speech, I feel like the Republic is responsible for the bombing. The way he articulated that Gunray was there, an hour or so before the bombing, just made sense that the Republic was trying to take him out. But for Palpatine to say that he would go, the more it sounds like this is just a bunch of crazy nonsense. There is no way that the Supreme Chancellor of the Republic can go to a hostile environment. But for all we want to say that he can convince them to allow a Jedi to take his place, Shows how truly inexperienced Obi-Wan actually is. And to be able to do it within 24 hours, he might just be a little bit off his rock. But I do think that Kenobi is completely right to think it was a trap for the Chancellor. I don't know how he's going to do it, but Obi-Wan will have to come up with a good proposition to keep the Chancellor from having to go. How he's going to do it, I don't have the slightest clue. We will have to listen to some more to find out. The Katasura disaster stole
1: the gathering sense of ceremony. Though when the meeting adjourned, Obi-Wan had hoped to express his pride to Anakin. And given the importance of the milestone, he'd figured his old Padawan would have wanted to have a moment together. But Anakin left so fast that Obi-Wan only caught the blur of his dark cloak on the way out. Thoughts stirred in his mind, war commitments keeping their relationship distant in the short span following the promotion. He'd held on to so many questions for Anakin, waiting for a quiet moment. Was his new arm working for him? Did he have any questions about the responsibilities that came with becoming a Jedi Knight? What really happened on Tatooine? But between the rapidly changing intel on the Separatist insurgencies, and the sheer chaos of synthesizing military battalions into the long-standing traditions of the Jedi Order... Obi-Wan and Anakin barely had time to breathe, let alone have a talk. Obi-Wan followed the trail of his former apprentice, hustling from the courtyard to the interior, then down the steps over to one of the Jedi Temple's wide hallways. He kept pace, though he never got too close. A range that put him in plain sight, just in case Anakin decided to slow down and turn around. But when it became clear that Anakin's pace was actually increasing, he reminded himself to let go of that personal desire to catch up. Anakin would come find him when he was good and ready. Besides, the catastrophe in and- Kato Nemuria remained his top priority. And the fallout from it meant all sorts of complications, not just for the Jedi, but for every system, faction, and government somehow connected to the war. He just had to find a way to start untangling it all. Obi-Wan was about to break left toward the stairway leading to the Jedi Archives when he saw Anakin pause down the hall. Despite the distance, he recognized Anakin's body language and the shift proved massive enough that it stole Obi-Wan's thoughts from the war. Anakin, so bold in his determination, usually walked with his weight carrying him forward, nearly leaning ahead as if he were chasing the future. But here Anakin stopped, and his entire body softened, from the way he held his shoulders to the way his arms hung. His head turned, waiting, and Anakin's smile grew so large that Obi-Wan saw it across the hall. Then he understood why. Dashing across to meet him was Padme Amidala, trailed by a handmaiden and one of Naboo's security, a woman Obi-Wan recognized as Mariette Panaka. The senator marched directly, wearing a flowing maroon dress with dark navy trim, a simple bronze headpiece holding her hair tightly in a bun. She took even and controlled steps, presenting the opposite of Anakin's hurried gait. But the same straight path, like magnets hurtling through space to lock into each other. He'd heard Padme had been visiting the capital planet on Senate Business for a few days, though all Senators had been in Coruscant more often than not in the weeks following Geonosis. As much as the Jedi shuffled around the galaxy these days, Senators seemingly had withdrawn to the core dealing with the hows and whys of a potential civil war, while the Jedi commanded clone troopers. Padme's proximity wasn't much of a surprise, but her stop at the Jedi Temple was a little out of the norm. Unless she planned on attending the courtyard ceremony for the newly promoted Jedi Knights. It may have been as simple as that, given her history with Anakin. A show of respect and gratitude. Something thrown off course by the news of Cato Namuidia. As for Anakin, well, Obi-Wan had known of his former Padawan's infatuation with the Senator for a while now. He understood, having handled his own youthful brush with temptation, one of the few things that still made him equally chuckle and groan when he thought of it. At least, until he let the memories drift away into the distance, knowing they'd float back ashore at some point. But here, Anakin's greeting, though stilted and formal, rippled a wave of emotion through the Force. A very specific frequency that Obi-Wan recognized as everything he knew about Anakin consolidated into a flash. Curiosity, adoration, joy, anxiety, fear. All of those rippled off Anakin. But above all came something far more dangerous. Passion. And passion was a liability even during normal Jedi operations, but infinitely more so in the context of war. He expected the Senator to go on her way, a short greeting before official business. He also expected Anakin to hesitate a second too long. That boyish infatuation ...pulling his attention more than it should before his sense of duty returned. Instead, they stood there, a careful distance apart to be sure, but something was markedly different here. Not that long ago, Padme had
0: practically brushed Anakin aside
1: when they'd arrived in her apartment following the assassination attempt right before Geonosis. Yet here, though they held an air of formality between them, they clearly engaged with each other. The Senator, known for giving impassioned speeches, for her sharp observational skills, for her ability to find a constructive path forward was lingering to talk with a Jedi known for never slowing down, whether in a speeder or on foot or by any other means. But there they were, talking politely, smiling at each other. Padme even took a quick glance around her, a subtle move that no one would notice up close, but it clearly stood out from above. Especially because, for the briefest of moments, Her bodyguard looked off at something in the distance. She reached up, a quick touch at the spot behind his ear where his Padawan braid had been. And then, as if the gesture flipped a switch in her, Padme's pose tightened, her chest and shoulders suddenly taller despite her small frame. Anakin, too, reacted but not with the expected embarrassment from such a close interaction with the object of one's infatuation, but rather a scan to either side, similar to Padme's yet nowhere near as subtle. He soon matched her, returning to a strong stance. Though he towered over her in height, the air of softness surrounded him, and another short conversation passed. Words too quiet for even a dedicated observer to pick up. Despite this turn to buckled down formality, Anakin's bare emotions continued rippling outward. Even as they parted ways, Anakin's feelings left a wake in the Force. A clear silhouette of his presence. Something that probably only Obi-Wan would recognize. Far too often, Anakin let his emotions dictate the situation... The tampering from Jedi training working only as a leash to the impulses that still ruled his actions. But anything that let a Jedi's guard down for even a moment put the Republic at risk. Especially one as powerful as Anakin Skywalker. Especially one prophesied to be the Chosen One. To bring balance to the Force. And Padme rather than dismissing it as she'd done in her apartment not too long ago, had amplified their connection. What to make of all of this? She was letting Anakin indulge in his infatuation, though to what degree Obi-Wan couldn't tell. But there was more to it. And Obi-Wan wasn't sure if he wanted to know where it led. Oh, the short word escaped him. An expression as unexpected as what he'd just witnessed. He continued watching Anakin, who took a moment to gather himself before stopping to talk with Jaro Tapal and the red-haired youngling who trailed him. And though they talked longer than he did with the Senator, no similar feelings projected from him. Not in Anakin's body language, nor in his connection to the Force. ''Oh, hello, Master Kenobi,'' Padme said with a quick wave. Is the Chancellor still here? Obi-Wan must have been so lost in watching Anakin that he completely missed Padme making her way up the stairs to his location. She stood still, and both her handmaiden and her bodyguard waited equally spaced from her, nearly a precise triangle formation. He nodded to greet the trio, then considered how to answer. He attended the ceremony by holo conference, But the topic changed quickly. Because of Cato Naimoidia? Because of Cato Naimoidia. Thank you, she said. A simple and efficient acknowledgement. Obi-Wan gave another quick nod, still in the same spot as she moved quickly past to connect with Senator Bail Organa across the hallway. It seemed that many senators were suddenly interested in visiting the Jedi Temple. But galactic disaster would do that Especially when Count Dooku publicly goaded the Republic into sending someone to the side of the bombing, possibly even its leader. Obi-Wan shook the mixture of doubts and concerns from his mind. The question of Anakin's motives pulling him away from the task at hand, though he reminded himself that something like this might not resolve immediately, or could resolve on its own. It might even require a conversation with Anakin. But right now, the Republic was at war. The Jedi had to intervene. And if he wanted to prevent Palpatine from falling into Dooku's trap, he needed to convince Kato nemoidia to accept a Jedi emissary rather than the Chancellor. Obi-Wan let go of his feelings and started toward the Jedi archives.
0: Okay we learned several different things in this part. We know that Obi-Wan is having a tough time with the transition, him going from Knight to Master and Anakin going from Padawan to Knight. I personally think that they're both having a hard time with it. They are second guessing themselves, questioning their actions and thoughts. But in this last section we find Obi-Wan wants to talk to Anakin about some of the things that have happened over the last few months prior to and since Geonosis. So he follows Anakin down a hallway after the ceremony. This is when he sees an interaction with Anakin and Padme. He realizes that there's more to the story than he was led to believe. He can feel the passion coming off of Anakin, and passion is a very bad thing to a Jedi, especially during a time of war. But because of what just happened on Kato Mordia, his duties call for him to go to the Jedi archives, instead of dealing with the situation with Anakin. I think because of all we want situation with Satine, something that was brought up in this part, he thinks that Anakin will overcome the situation the way he did as we all know that didn't happen, but I think that's what he believes. This part shows us that a lot of the things go on because of the war. No one has time to figure out a situation, because the fate of the galaxy is at stake, and I think this is one of the biggest tricks this city has played, keeping everyone so busy that they couldn't see what he was really doing behind the scenes. At least that's how I'm taking it. Now let's get to the quote for this week, and it comes to us from Linda M. Child. She said, Belief in oneself is one of the most important bricks in building any successful venture. Now this is a very important quote, because when you start a new venture, push your new idea into a business, the only person you can truly count on is yourself. You're the only one that has to push yourself and believe in yourself in order to keep yourself going. When things get hard, you are the one that has to push through it. You must believe in yourself to achieve your goals. There's no one that's going to do it for you. You are the one that has to work as hard as you can to gain that success. You are the one that sees the finished pyramid as you lay the first brick. You must believe in yourself first and foremost. Success will not be achieved because others believe in you. A sense of self-worth is what overcomes all obstacles. It is the hardships and failures that teach us the true lessons of success. And from those lessons is what will teach you the values of success. But belief in yourself is what will actually get you there. Okay, that's all we have for today. Join us next week for part four. We hope to see you there.